electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Today's big rally. What, if anything, it means for where stocks might go from here, a start to the new trading quarter, We'll debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Kerry Firestone, Surat Sethi, Steve Weiss, Joe Terranova. Also with us for the hour today, Victoria Green, Chief Investment Officer of G-Squared Private Wealth. Nice to see you along with the gang today. Let's check the markets, where we do have a big rally underway, and we're going to get to all of that in just a moment. We do begin with a story, though, that is new at noon. New reporting now on the fresh and intense efforts by Credit Suisse to allay fears that that bank is in serious trouble. Yet another internal memo from the firm's top brass has gone out to senior-level leaders today on what to tell clients and even the media about the bank's health. This after a memo sent on Friday, which CNBC has been reporting on by the CEO to employees, did little to ease concerns. In fact, it only seemed to raise more questions. Rumors on social media over the weekend did little to help. The headline talking point from this new document, which I've seen, says, quote, the widening of CDS spreads should not be mistaken for our capital or liquidity position. Credit Suisse has a strong capital and liquidity position and balance sheet. Now, there are several key points of emphasis that were also made within this document. Number one, on the bank's capital position, they say the bank's tier one uh, leverage ratio of 6.1 percent was the highest among their peer group at the end of Q2 2022. On the liquidity position, quote, we have a strong liquidity position with a liquidity coverage ratio of 191%. That's the highest among our peer group, they say. Quote, speculating that we have a liquidity issue simply would be completely false. Then on the balance sheet, they call it well diversified with a high quality liquid assets. On the loan book, they say it's highly collateralized. We've been watching CDS spreads. They've widened to levels not seen since 09. And the shares, as all of you know, hit a new low earlier today before turning around. There they remain positive. And maybe that's helping sentiment in the overall market. City is out with a new note this morning titled, quote, unquote, this is not 2008. Now, what I want to do with all of you, and Joe, I'll begin with you, is not sit here and speculate on Credit Suisse. What I want to do is... <laughs> Talk about the unease that's going on in Europe, the concerns, right? Uh, and what, if anything, it means for what the Fed might or might not do at their upcoming meeting, if it has any bearing on the size of another rate increase or lack thereof. What do you think? I think collectively it begins the process in which those that wish to dissent against the current monetary policy within the Federal Reserve begin to build their case. If you go back to what's known as the Great Moderation, okay, that's in the 1980s. It reaches its peak in September of 1984 when the Federal Reserve actually pauses raising rates and begins to actually lower rates. What you witnessed before that was dissension build within the Federal Reserve. And I think a very similar situation is ultimately what's going to get the Federal Reserve to say, okay, 
75 basis points hikes, unprecedented. We need to moderate that maybe to 50 basis points, allow quantitative tightening to begin to do its work and ultimately reach a point where they communicate to markets that this monetary policy cycle is going to begin to pause. Financial market stability is important. A lower ISM reading is part of that dissension conversation. What we'll get on October 13th in terms of inflation is part of that dissension conversation. But the news today, okay, that strengthens those that wish to dissent. So, Weiss, um, the mere fact that Credit Suisse is going to great efforts, both in that memo from the CEO to employees on Friday and then again with this correspondence, this morning to, to top leaders there, which, again, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to take a look at, um, just speaks to the stress that's in the overall narrative uh, about what's happening in Europe, right? Financial conditions uh, tightening around the world because of, you know, central banks and, and in some cases, uh, fiscal policymakers as well over in the UK. And what all of those implications are for how we should think about policymakers here um, and those calls that have grown quite loud that the Fed should maybe do nothing at their upcoming meeting and they should just kind of take a look around and wait and see and, and let everything filter through the system before, before they cause stress that they can't reverse. Well, we don't know what the right answer is or wrong answer is because, as you're alluding to, or in fact saying, we don't know what's been done to the economy from the rate hikes thus far. However, I still think that, that it, it, it's a waste of time to have the pivot discussion right now. And by the way, the Fed's not going to do it. Think of the credibility they would lose if at the upcoming meeting they just said, just kidding, we're going to let Europe, we're going to let the tail wag the dog. It's not going to happen. They've still got in, untenably high inflation here. And by the way, why is nobody talking about OPEC potentially taking out a million to a million and a half barrels and reversing the declines in oil prices and prices at the pump? So you see, there are too many variables. The Fed's maniacally focused, as they should be, on bringing down an overheated commodity and an overheated labor market. And they're going to keep doing it. And to think otherwise is a mistake, and I think a pretty bad investment mm -hmm. case when the very fact that you're talking about damage that exceeds what people can imagine in the market is what's going to hit stock prices no, because but, earnings will come down from that and from the currency. But my point is like high stress within the global financial system is the one thing that could cause the pivot, right? The, yes. the, the Fed is not going to watch the U.S. stock market well, go down um, in, the, in the level that it has and said, oh, my God, we, we need to make a pivot. Hmm. It's always been about credit markets and increased global stress, self-inflicted or otherwise by other central banks that may have run on effect that, that caused conditions to become uh, Victoria even more tight. That, that's the one thing that could cause a, a pivot or, sure. or one of the things that could cause a, a pivot well, that changes the calculus for stocks, perhaps. 
Look at the UK, the poor guys. I mean, they, they, they went out with this, oh, we're gonna cut taxes, we've got this plan, and then 10 days later, they're reversing course, they have to step into the bond market, they have to intervene because of liquidity. We've always said the only two things that will cause the Fed to move is unemployment going up or lock up in liquidity, and they will care about a lock up in liquidity. So I think that's what their emergency meeting today was about, is what's happening in the UK? Is there a risk of contagion? You know, everybody saw how that worked in, in 08 or in 2020. We are so interconnected connected, the fall of sterling, fall of euro, fall of the yen, and the U.S. dollar strength, they are all interconnected. So we aren't just in a bubble here. We do get affected by other economies. And you have to look at what's happening. And the U.K. now is in a very bad rock and a hard place, right? They've got high inflation, 11% or so. Plus, now they're potentially having to ease in a market they were trying to actually tighten. And, and are they going to raise rates? And what's the BOE going to do? And I do think that has the, the Fed has to take a pause and say, what is the global health right now? Because the risk of contagion is always extremely high and sometimes that can get out of control so if there is and i don't even like to use this word but a, a slight panic then you have to worry about that bleeding into our market so i do think it's the right for the fed to be concerned about it but i do think they should still stay data dependent and see how it's playing out in the uk and europe before they make any decisions i mean it's not a surprise to me either that as credit suisse went from you know uh, a really difficult day in the market not that a sub four dollar stock is anything to uh, cheer about <laughs> But the fact that it stabilized and moved positive, I think, is, has helped overall sentiment, if mm -hmm. not the market at large. Now, uh, Surat, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson uh, suggests, bottom line, in the absence of a Fed pivot, stocks are likely heading lower. Conversely, a Fed pivot or the anticipation of one can still lead to sharp rallies. It seems to me that that's kind of the only thing we got right now, right? I mean, what, what else is out there that's going to be the catalyst to lift stocks? Is it... Um, a, a shockingly good read on inflation, um, surprisingly great earnings with commentary that's not so dire. W what are we hanging our hat on that the big buy signal is, is going to be? Yeah, I mean, uh, Scott, I think that's what the market will look for. And I think the market's telling you, except for today, but that, hey, listen, earnings are going to come down. We're not we don't really see a catalyst in the short term. Uh, but then you add to kind of Wilson's note and said, you know, the, the Fed, it's not, you know, if it's when and if something like this is happening globally where it's just the central banks need to, you know, uh, infuse some some confidence. Uh, and if that happens, you could see the markets kind of flatline. I'm not saying they're going to go up from here, uh, but at least then we kind of go to earnings season and then look forward to what the next couple of quarters are going to be. And, and that will be a tell. It will be, I mean, companies will have the data right on hand as to how inflation is playing out, how commodity prices are playing out, what is the consumer doing. Uh, I think that's going to be interesting uh, to see. And then really, what is that second derivative of earnings going to look like? We know it's coming down mm -hmm. over the next couple of quarters. Unless, Kerry, all you need to do is look at yields. And I look at a 10-year <laughs> that's down 40 basis points. Four, zero basis points from, what, early last week? I mean, 10-year is at 360. We're, we're yep. 4%. Um, maybe that's the only thing you need to watch. Well, last week, Scott, we really had a bit of a panic uh, when you look at yields. I mean, they skyrocketed. And the market, of course, was down about 3%. So they, uh, the panic fed into more panic on all sides of the ledger. So today is a bit the opposite. We had uh, what I think was taken as positive news about manufacturing. Uh, there's the Credit Suisse 
you know, piece of news, not positive, but it certainly didn't affect the futures. But what did affect the market was that manufacturing seems to be slowing and the orders were lower than expected and are, you know, we're below 50, 47. So that suggests a decline in industrial production in the U.S. That's what we need to see because if it's coming down, that's disinflationary. Uh, the market wants to feel comfortable that the Fed on the Fed side isn't going to make a mistake to the extent that we create a big accident. You don't want the repo market to fall apart uh, the way it did in 2019 for a while and yields went crazy for about a week. And now that, you know, there, there's a factor here that's going on in Europe that's brought to the attention of the Fed and that's something that they're going to discuss. It's certainly not going to change their policies, but we do have something tangible manufacturing industrial production that may be uh, an effect of the Fed's rate increases. And we want to see that. And that's the only way that we're going to have a sustained rally in the market. Earnings we know are going to be weak, but we have to have some suggestion that inflation is coming down. We know or we feel that it's peaked, but man, it's very slow to move um, to the downside. And, you know, every little bit of incremental news, I'd say investors will take to be positive and hold us above that June low. I mean, we're getting close. We're getting close to there again. And we need to be above that 3666 level. Joe? I, I, I think that without question, it's the U.S. dollar which is down 2% in the last five days. It is what we're seeing in the Treasury market. And unfortunately, we're all kind of reacting to the Treasury market. And I don't see that condition changing at all until the Federal Reserve meeting on November 1st and November 2nd. I think for the entirety of October, the first thing that you're going to be doing when you turn on uh, the screen to see where pricing is, is look towards Treasury yields, look at the U.S. dollar, and look at the price of oil. So you've got right now uh, a little bit of a lift in the market. It's not uncommon. Back in September, the early part of the month, we experienced the similar condition in which you had that extreme positioning for sentiment and in terms of what was uh, in the market. And that was recovered. You know, we moderated a lot of that pessimism as you moved into the inflation report. And I see the same thing happening here. The same thing. Now, you could do one of two things with it. You could go with it. You could go with that positive momentum into the inflation report. Or you could look at your portfolio or, or the risk that you've got in the market, and you could reduce it into that number. Because I think, Scott, you and I both agree, when you get that inflation report, I don't think that's going to be an all-clear signal in any regard, either higher or lower. You're going to need more dissemination of information in terms of earnings and what the Fed's going to you do. You said you, though, were looking again at the cues, keeping I, your eye on yeah, the possibility I, <laughs> of making a move again in an area that's been banged up a lot. I, I was, I think uh, I'm a little discouraged in terms of, of taking that trade because what today, really the leadership is coming from the value side, the equal weighted side. So it's, it's materials, it's industrials, it's financials, it's energy that are leading the market higher. You have this news with Tesla, which takes away that relative performance trade that you had for the last several weeks. So, you know, clearly there's a challenge right now to, to growth and technology. I don't think that's been erased or kind of washed away by the performance today. Uh, on a relative performance basis, it's actually underperforming the broader S&P, you know, which you've got over 95% of the S&P that's higher today. So, Weiss, you know, I got Jonathan Krinsky. We're getting closer, he thinks, but you're going to overshoot towards 3,400. That's likely, and it's needed for capitulation, he said. We don't think 3,589 is going to mark the low. 
could see a possible overshoot towards 34 before a more durable low forms later in October. Does that mess with your, your kind of thinking? I mean, at some point, Steve, as negative as you've been, you're going to say enough is enough, yep. and you're going to start putting more, you know, some capital that you have, you know, an incredibly high cash position in to work. Yeah, you know, in truth, Scott, every day I, I think to myself, am I being too bearish? Is now the time to buy semis, some semis that are trading below 10 times earnings? And then I come back to it and said, you know what? That's not the narrative. And I don't even think that we're discounting all the potential negatives. Some are black swan negatives. For example, we've got a shadow banking market that's not regulated that is trillions and trillions of dollars, 50 trillion by some estimates. Um, what happens there as rates go up? How much of that are on variable interest rates? And then you've got the China-Taiwan situation. What happens, do you want to own semis if China blockades that? So we're in the environment where you take what, what were unthinkable uh, black swan events and you say, well, we got Ukraine, Russia, maybe they're not so unthinkable. So until I really know what the E is, and until analysts who say, you know, lowering their targets, but are still closet bulls, not even, you know, closet with the door shut, closet with the doors open, so you can see they're still bullish. Until estimates come down, or I believe the thought, the realization that estimates can come down significantly, I just don't think it's time to buy in. So it's going to be painful. I'm still a little net short today. I can tell you that it's a little painful today. But uh, you're going to see these rallies as we go through the end of the year. But ultimately, you're not going to miss anything as you have not missed anything all along in any stock, pretty much. I mean, look, just, just a week and a half ago when I sold Apple, everybody's going, what are you doing selling Apple? Well, take a look at it now. It's 10 percent lower. So I think just patience is the key. And in environments like this, you want to protect capital and live to play another day, not try to pick the bottom with new buy ideas and things like that. So let's not pick the bottom. Victoria is now close enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get a, a little bit happy about the market. You know, we'd like it at 35, 34 is attractive, 32 is extremely attractive. I think we could retest to the 34, 32 level. We saw that 200 week moving average hold and then a little bit we bounced off of that support. And the long term bull trend is still intact. You have RSI hit oversold similar to what it did earlier in the summer. And so I could see us have a short term rebound, but we always want to take advantage of pullbacks for quality stocks. Because if you liked it, you know, if you liked Apple at 180, you like it at 140, 130 hitting its lows, it would be a very attractive stock. So you have to be patient and disciplined, but you also need to understand that before earnings bottom out, all these expectations are going to get worse. And then the stock is going to start outperforming its earnings. So you need to be prepared to move and be disciplined because I do think the bottom can be built here in Q4, especially as we see the acceleration of bad news out of the UK and Europe, that I think, in my opinion, could put the Fed to slow down a little bit. And in my opinion, as soon as the Fed hints, thinks about, meditates, somehow we get information that the Fed may think about slowing down, that is going to be a huge catalyst for this market because this bear market has been mostly Fed-induced. Uh, so I think you still want to look at quality. Also push back, like energy has been very positive this year. There have been sectors and stocks that have performed well, and you, you see some supports out there. So I don't think it's a every single stock is down. Yeah, we saw what uh, September was 93% of uh, the S&P 500 was down. But that, to me, is looking closer and closer to a washout and the delightful word of capitulation. We're seeing
seeing breath look like capitulation. Analysts are giving up on their targets. Everybody's reducing the year on target. I think we had what City and Credit Suisse both today reducing the year on target. Still well above where we're trading today. But I think that signals capitulation. As soon as people stop, they give up, they throw in the towel, that, that's much closer to the bottom. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's still a couple of holdouts. We all know who they are. Uh, we'll, we'll see, you know, if they finally break and, and, and throw in the towel. Um, by the way, on overtime tonight, I got an interesting guest. Um, <laughs> you guys, I just hope you watch. That's all I'll say, because what their call has been on the market has been so one-sided. Tonight might be a little bit different. That's all I'll say. I'll tell you more later. Surat, um, are we close enough? I think we're getting there. And, and I, you know, I, I agree. I mean, there's so much pessimism. I, you know, I talk to investors almost every day and, and I can't tell you, I haven't heard this amount of negativity. Oh, I need to get out. I need to, you know, this is just too much. We're going to go way, way down. They all sound like Weiss, you know. So at the end of the day, like as a contraindicator, I think we're close. Uh, would I go all in now? No. If I'm invested, I'd stay. But I would look for those indicators at 3,500. To start adding there, 3,400, I'd, I'd get happier to do it. It wouldn't be happy situation, you know, around the office. But, but I, I do think that that's where you could see some clarity, and I think earnings will, will help what us do you down mean? there. It wouldn't but be happy. You put a bag, you'd be like one of those guys at the football game. You put a bag over your head with cutouts of the eyes, and you buy stocks. You don't want anybody to see you that's did it. That's what I would that, be doing. That would, that would be it. No, no, I'd be buying at 3,400 and below for for clients that have cash because I've told them that's kind of where I. I'm looking and, and it's, you know, when you go to 3,400, everybody, Scott, on your show is going to be talking about how we're going to go to 3,000. And that's right. You know, nobody knows at that point. But 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 at that point, if you look at kind of unless things are really radically changed, I think if you're looking at 12 months to 18 months, you'll be well served. All right. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Up next, we'll talk about that big rally in oil today on reports. OPEC may be planning a massive production cut this week. What that would mean for the energy trade, which we were just mentioning We'll do that in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started.
All right, we're back. Got a wall of uh, green uh, for a change. Uh, but we have a good day going on Wall Street. Uh, first trading day of the quarter. Oil is surging today. Energy is the best performing sector. OPEC and non-OPEC producers meeting in Vienna this week and reportedly considering cutting production by more than a million barrels a day. That would be the biggest cut since the start of the pandemic. Joe, I know you watch this real close. I, I, I do. And, you know, in Joe T's ETF, you've got uh, a 9.8 percent weighting towards energy. I've talked about that at length. I think from a supply perspective, there's no sector in which you could you could pre- present such compelling evidence to be overweight than than energy in particular as you move into the winter season so over the last five days there's been a significant outperformance for energy equities relative to the s p energy equities are up nearly nine percent and scott that's with natural gas now below six dollars and fifty cents so uh, I, I i advocate once again for viewers to to really give strong consideration if you're carrying these energy names and an underweight to raising that at least to an equal weight hey carrie why no exposure here um if this is as joe suggests the place to be uh, over virtually everything else why wouldn't you be here mm-hmm. well you can look at the 10 years prior to 2000 and 21 basically and say that's a reason why not to be i mean i'm not being glib but you know it's this is a commodity that's very difficult to predict these stocks ride with the commodity there are cycles we've been in an up cycle for energy and anyone who suggests they can tell that the price is going to 150 or to 60 hasn't followed energy long enough to know that's impossible. And OPEC saying they're going to cut by one million. Maybe they will and maybe they won't. And maybe they'll try it and maybe there'll be a resolution in the Ukraine. These are all unknowables. And we sold all of our energy, you know, too early, obviously. We don't have any now. But I wouldn't jump in here just because it looks like the winter is going to be tough because the market will react before the winter gets very tough. And there might be something better that comes out of this. I understand what Joe's saying. He's it's just not head. the way yeah. we want to play stocks. No, I don't think he understands what you're what? saying. No, Carrie, Carrie, I'm sorry. No, <laughs> I, 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 I disagree. He does. He no, does. Car- but Carrie, no, no, no one's talking about uh, establishing some sort of position in, you know, the commodity itself. I think what we're identifying is just an overall environment for energy equities that's probably as as conducive as you've witnessed in the last 10 years, where these companies right now. Yeah, but they've had two years, huge outperformance, right? The last two years, incredible outperformance. But we're looking back on past performance. What I'm trying to identify is what's the environment, what's the supply-demand balance right now? And there really is this disincentive to grow production which means that all these energy companies are taking that incremental dollar of revenue and returning it to shareholders in some capacity. And that's witnessed in the outperformance year to date. Energy equities are up 36 percent. The price of oil is up 9 percent. I don't care if the price of oil goes to 110 or 120. The price of oil is able to maintain its level here between 70 and 90 dollars. I think still these energy companies where there's significant underinvestment and a prioritization right now of the shareholder, I think that's the right place to be. So they can continue to pay out big dividends, and I don't doubt that. But they can also stop outperforming the market, particularly when demand falls. And if we're having a recession globally, demand is not going to hold up. That would be my final thought there. Weiss, was that you? Yeah, you know, take a look at, pick some of your best energy companies. You want to pick XOM? Look at the chart. 
It's back where it was 10 years ago. For all the times I've heard the story, hey, these companies still make great money at $60 oil, at $30 oil. Yeah, so what? But they're directly tied to the commodity. You have to trade energy. You can't own it. You can't invest it. And that's been true for the last decade. And frankly, you know, I was talking to one energy person. And he told me, I don't think any of the energy funds are up over the last 10 years. Look what's happened to the equity markets. So this may be the good time. But yeah, I mean, you're basing it on what OPEC is doing, pure and simple. And you could be OK with that. But you just have to be a trader in this space. And by the way, some of the best traders in commodities have blown up. It's a two or three year gig. Make a lot of money, then you move on. Victoria. So everybody knows but, it's going to be yeah. cold in the winter. I need somebody to fight hold with on, Weiss. Hold on. Yeah, everybody. no, I got you. I got, I got you. I got you back on this one. Thank I, got you. I knew this. you would. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> no, so look at that. So by that logic, then you shouldn't have invested in tech stocks coming out of 2000 because tech stocks didn't make make money for a decade either. Look, you're coming off of this period. You got to look at the. No, that's not the you same logic. The it is. It, it, is. it is. It's saying the stocks okay. didn't make money for a decade. So it's stupid to invest in them because they're not going to make money in the coming decade. You need to look at rig counts, country investments, the supply and demand and what's going to happen. Yeah, short term, we could see some revision, but you also don't have the wildcatter mentality. If you look at the graph of the rig charts, the problem we had uh, out of 08 or coming out of 2013, 2014, where we had a sustained price increase over 100 for a long period of time, you were at like 1,800 rigs. We're at 795 right now. We're still below pre-pandemic levels. And if you look at what, what the demand is, as Russia steps out of the market a little bit, the sanctions aren't working that well, but we know we see a supply-demand imbalance. I do think there's a compelling long-term story because of the underinvestment in oil and because of the SPR releases. I know the U.S push back, they're going to go one more month, but they're going to have to start. If you, again, look at the charts, you can see how low the SPRs, and it's not just the United States SPR, everybody released the oil to help. And so if, if OPEC truly is going to tighten because they're concerned about the demand destruction, and Kerry's right about that, recessions typically are very bad for oil demand, uh, but you have to refill your SPRs. Mm -hmm. You have a big player in Russia that may get taken off the board even further, especially if they have further aggressions. Then I see a compelling story, especially for the U.S. EMP producers. Talk about your Devon. Pull up the Devon energy chart now over a decade. I mean, what they do with their fixed plus variable dividend, you have a lot of great oil and gas companies, and then you have the LNG export story. And so you have more than just, hey, we're going to have electric vehicles and is this peak oil demand. And I get that story has been around for a decade. But if you look at what the supply demand factors are, I think there is a compelling story because they're not putting the money back in the ground. They're putting the money to the investors. Yeah, and their investors are getting paid today. Uh, can, Conoco, can I just reply to that? And, yes, you I'll give you Yes, I will. I'll give you the last word on that, Weiss. Just okay. be brief for okay. me. I got you. Okay, I'll be brief. Impossible. I've got to be brief because of the time that's left. But I would tell you, you can no way compare technology to a commodity that has a supply-demand curve that's constantly moving and which is very, very tough to analyze. So I applaud you for being able to do what others who just specialize in the sector have not been able to do for time memoriam. But when you have growth stocks like Microsoft, like Apple that did well in post-2010 versus the garage.coms, et cetera. You just can't compare them. Steve, so I think that's specious at best. Steve, why are we going back talking about 10 years, though, if it's just a trade? Just how does the trade look right now to you for energy? How does the trade look? It's, it, I'm, I'm, being, I'm, I'm being cautious. I'm trying to. We're an information show. And I'm telling investors, don't get married to energy. You want to trade it, trade it. I'm not saying don't trade it. I'm just saying, no, you're going to trade it. Okay. Okay. That's fair. All right. We'll take a quick break. Oh, no, we won't. Christina Parts and Evelos has the headlines for us. 
No, Christine. we won't. Hi, Scott. Here's what's happening at this hour. Opening statements are underway for the most serious case to reach trial in the January 6th cap attack on Capitol Hill. Prosecutors say the founder of the Oath Keepers and four associates plan for an armed rebellion to stop the transfer of presidential power. President Biden is on his way to Puerto Rico to survey damages from Hurricane Fiona there. Over 100,000 people are still without power. Biden says he wants to make sure Puerto Ricans get the aid they deserve. And to Puerto Rico because they haven't been taken very good care of. They've been trying like hell to catch up from the last hurricane. I want to see the state of affairs today and make sure we fix everything we can. And in London, Britain's finance minister says he will soon release details on new fiscal reforms. This after plans to reduce income taxes on the wealthiest Britons were dropped. He also asked for full forecasts of the budget impact of the plans to be published. Scott, back to you. Christina, thank you very much. Christina Partsinevelos. All right, coming up, the ETFs you need to watch, plus the tech trade in the fourth quarter and Wall Street's top stock ideas for the remainder of the year. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Environmental, social, and governance, ESG, investing, remains controversial. With some saying investors are demanding corporations pay more attention to broader social issues. Others saying corporations should stick solely to earning profits for their shareholders. Joining us to discuss is Vivek Ramaswamy. He's the executive chairman of Strive Asset Management. Arnie Nowak is the head of Systemic Investment Solutions for the Americas at DWS. He runs several ESG funds. Mr. Ramaswamy, thank you for joining us. You've been very vocal claiming ESG is an example of woke capitalism. Your Strive U.S. Energy ETF tracks an index of energy stocks and attempts to use proxy voting to influence energy companies. What kind of engagement have you had with companies your fund owns, like Exxon and Chevron? I know you own them. And how have they received your message? Sure. So in the energy companies and the, the energy fund is drill, D-R-L-L, the message is really simple. Focus on drilling, fracking, doing whatever allows you to be most successful without regard to political or social agendas. I sent a public letter to the shareholder letter to the board of directors of Chevron. They responded afterwards. I had dinner with executives of their company at request of their CEO. I met with their CFO over dinner and we had a, a healthy exchange. And at the end of the day, I think I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired of both sides of this debate where, you know, for a long time, I've said that ESG reflects the politicization of the boardroom, where the other side says, no, 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 this is about long-run financial value. I think it's time we move that debate forward and actually debate the specific proposals that are on offer. And in the case of Chevron, the proposal that I was most focused on in my shareholder letter was the scope three emissions cap proposal in 2021 that BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard and other ESG-promoting asset managers voted in favor of. We at Strive would have voted against and will be against per the letter that I wrote. I think we should have the debate not about whether this is the right thing for society, leave politics to the politicians, I say, but in the boardroom, say in the companies of boardrooms of companies like Chevron or Exxon, we have to debate whether this is in the best interests of the company's owners, full stop. And I hope that brings a healthy debate back to the boardrooms 
and back to capital markets, which is our goal at Strive. You know, Mr. Nowak, ESG is getting attacked from the left and the right. I find this very amusing. There's an article in the Sunday New York Times yesterday that said that ESG was a sham because it made companies look more socially responsible than they really are. And what we need, the article said, is more stringent guidelines for what constitutes ESG, essentially more ESG. You know, you run several ESG funds. Uh, What criteria do you use? Is ESG a sham like the New York Times article says? Oh, thank you, Bob. I I certainly don't agree that it's a sham. Uh, sham is a very strong word. All we're doing is we're taking publicly available data and incorporating those data in a thoughtful way in our investment process. There's nothing shammy about it. It's, it's very much designed to be good, good investment philosophy. Yeah, you know, this is a fascinating debate. We're going to have a very lively discussion on ESG coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Mr. Ramaswamy and Mr. Nowak are going to be joined by Todd Rosenbluth. He's the head of research at Vetify. Now, we're going to discuss how the ESG business could improve its metrics, should it even be improved, and who's winning and losing the proxy wars that Mr. Ramaswamy was bringing up there. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Join us then. Halftime Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Tech is pushing higher today. It's posting its third straight negative quarter, though. That's the first time since 2002. The question is, is this quarter carry going to be any better? Well, I certainly hope it's going to be better for the stocks. Uh, Whether it's going to be better for earnings uh, is debatable. A lot of the big tech names have both advertising exposures such as Alphabet and Meta, or they have uh, a large uh, foreign uh, contribution to sales such as as Apple, um, and, you know, many Well, is many it going to be better the for the stocks or not, companies. right? I mean, we know so, all those challenges yes. for earnings. Oh, right? yes. Forgive me for interrupting so, yes. you, but yeah. yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think the answer has to be yes, because, you know, several factors. First, most of them are down much more than the market. And so if you look at the large cap techs, they're down, you know, I would say 28% to 75%. And even if you uh, look at names such as PayPal and Netflix, and I'm including Netflix and technology, even though it's, you know, communications, those stocks were so washed up that they've actually been outperforming the market recently. And we think that uh, investors are starting to buy them, even if they're just nibbling, their market caps are down so much that they're selling at, you know, 17, 18 times earnings. The multiples are way down. They sell for less than the consumer staples stock. And if we're beginning to look forward to a point where the Fed will ease up if it's six months plus, then I think this is the time to uh, be buying some of the tech stocks. Sherrod, is it, is it that time? Right. I mean, these are down a lot. And, and Kerry was right, uh, more or less on the declines from their 52 week highs. Right. The, the, the least off their 52 week high is Apple, which is down 24 percent. NVIDIA is down 65 and Meta's down 60 Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't really count on the Fed kind of helping us out here, because even if they do stop raising rates, I don't believe they're going to be cutting rates. So your whole discount uh, rate has to be formulated into that. I also think like we have to hear about, I mean, they have so many headwinds. So you can kind of add little pieces if you don't have them. But I wouldn't go in full positions because I think there's a lot more for us to learn, especially over the next quarter. Victoria, is there more downside ahead for some of these big cap tech names or, or, or not? Is the damage already, you know, enough? 
No, I, I think there's a little more downside pressure, unfortunately. Like the great names, a lot of the, the big tech led us here, and, and they, I think they will rise from the ashes to lead again. But you have, you know, rising rates and strong U.S. dollar. That's a very bad macro uh, environment for these stocks to outperform. And then some of them may have further downside risk. NVIDIA is a great example. It's a fantastic stock. But listen to what Micron had to say and the potential slowing in the computing and gaming. Uh, that, that may be a potential headwind that lasts a little bit longer as the recession plays out. We always say, well, stocks are a leading indicator. But the problem is some of those that you're seeing demand really struggle for their products. That may be a little bit longer lasting. So I think I'm selectively will get interested in the fourth quarter if we see more downside pressure. Um, but I think you also have to understand what you're owning. And, and you know, right now we're, we're definitely wanting to be very selective and not broad brush. Because if you look at the, the fangs or whatever we call it now, since, since Facebook technically changed its name. But like, for instance, Facebook to me is a good example of a stock that I think is going to struggle forever for perpetuity going forward until they figure out right. who they are again because they're really struggling to find you know especially with the the um, app store change and then their marketing's going down and they you get all this bad press right and so i think you have to understand what's past tech what's future tech and understand what you own and what their earnings you, are going forward you need joe to also understand that in a market like this big gainers are going to be atm machine victims for investors right we have your biggest gains if there's unsettled markets, you're going to go to the winners first, the big ones, to take your profits off the table. Yeah, especially when you reach the 10th month of a correction. At this point now, you're selling holdings that you don't want to sell. Uh, if there's further downside for the indexes, the S&P and the NASDAQ, unfortunately, it's going to be these mega cap technology and consumer discretionary names that are going to be used as a source of funds, and they're going to come under pressure, they despite have. what I might say about the fundamentals. All right. Still ahead, we'll discuss Wall Street's top ideas for the fourth quarter. Of course, we'll debate them, too. And to celebrate Hispanic heritage, CNBC is featuring our teammates and contributors. Here is Carlos Abrams Rivera, Kraft Heinz North America president. We are very much a passionate uh, people who care deeply and who celebrate loudly. So I think when you're with us, you'll get to see the world with a new tapestry of colors that you have never seen before. The reality is that we are entrenched in the fabric of America. And you may know the sounds of, you know, Bad Bunny and J-Lo, and, and you may know the food of Mexico, Puerto Rico, and Brazil, and we're all that. But we're also in Congress and the Supreme Court, and we are Nobel laureates, and we are scientists. And when you talk about the story of America, many of those voices are going to have a Spanish accent. All right, welcome back. Several Wall Street firms out with their top ideas for the fourth quarter. Surat, you're all over JP Morgan's ideas. GM, Honeywell, Microsoft, Qualcomm, Amazon among the names. Why is, why is Honeywell in this environment one of the best ideas, do you think, for the fourth quarter? So Honeywell is one of the best run diversified industrials out there. Great management team. They've been tr uh, trimming, pruning their product lines and segments. And I think if you're going to go through a, a downturn with any type of companies like Honeywell, Honeywell is like the G of the past. And they've got, you know, aerospace. They've got other industrial production and their balance sheet is pristine. They're always looking for good acquisition. So all those combinations, like, you know, that's a company you, you want to own. That's the blue chip of the industrials. Carrie, on that same list, I've got Salesforce, yours. 
Salesforce is another name that's come down tremendously over the last year and a half. I mean, it peaked during the pandemic, and it's been one of the worst performers in the S&P. The company just reiterated at their investor day guidance for the rest of the year and next year. And we think that, you know, they're astute. Uh, doesn't feel as if they're trying to be overly optimistic. They were trying to be uh, sensible. Their CRM business is by far the dominant uh, CRM that, that's available. And we think at this price, it's come down enough to be attractive for investors, particularly those who have no exposure to it. Yeah. Weiss, do you, not, you like any of the names on any of these? Um, you know, look, healthcare, uh, United Health has, has done quite well. Um, you've got some cyber names like CrowdStrike, MasterCard, Payment Space. What do you think? You, you know, <laughs> I do like healthcare. United Healthcare has, has been great, and uh, and that's an area where I spend a lot of time, as you know. And and I'm looking at it, and I like the service companies. So I've got a shopping list. United Healthcare happens to be on it. Uh, I'm not so crazy about MasterCard. I just think there are too many political headwinds in charging it. Uh, it's a great company, but the stock's really done nothing. Even before we've seen the market collapse, that and Visa have basically been flat. Um, and fintech is just very, very difficult overall. So, look, you know, Salesforce, I always look at, but it's always gotten cheaper. I agree with Surat. Honeywell is one I do have my eye on because I've had the opportunity to spend some time with the CEO. Unbelievably managed company and with great products and just very focused on productivity and also new products. So that's one that I would go to my view in the market changes for sure. Mm. Joe, CrowdStrike? Still own it. Honeywell is a name that I don't own that I, without question I am very interested in. I agree with Steve. You used to that. own that though, right? I did. You used to love that stock. I did. That was a stock mm -hmm. that I held for, for quite some time and stock I'll get back into. Okay. Take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades on the other side. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, overtime, 4 o'clock today. I hope you'll join me. I alluded to this before. I mean, there is negative, and then there's that guy, Eric Johnston. I mean, he has been one of the most negative strategists on the street. He's coming back today because he has a new market call. And I don't want you to miss it, so I hope you'll join me then. Matthew Boss will be with me. J.P. Morgan, he's the number one retail analyst on the street. Give us clues on, you know, who else has inventory problems, margin issues ahead of earnings season. You want to know now, not then. And Cameron Dawson, too. So I'll see all of you then. By the way, Kerry has a new op-ed on CNBC.com titled The Fourth Quarter Begins. And here is what the 2022 bear market has taught us to check that out. Kerry, give me a final trade first and brief, please. Um, a line, ALGN, it's down from about 700 to about 200. We've been watching it for two years, and at this price, it's 20 times earnings, and we think this is an attractive okay. entry. Victoria. Got to go with Chenier. Global energy security is going to be a huge theme the next decade, their best position. Surat. Uh, Uber stocks come down, still focused on cash flow generation, one of the most misunderstood stories out there. Got a price target bump today uh, as well. I happen to notice. Steve Weiss. EQT, my final trade from Friday going with it today, and I bought some. Okay, and Joey T? RJF, Raymond James Financial Services. All right, uh, we'll see if we can hold on to this uh, really sizable rally we have to start the week. I'll see you in overtime. Hope you'll join me then. The exchange begins right now. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.